Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. Well, my message this morning is a part two of a topic that I begun two weeks ago. And uh, that topic is motivated by reward. This is part of a, a larger series that we've been doing, talking about the both the, uh, the plurality and the priority of biblical motivations for obeying God. We've already spoken about being motivated by the love of God. We've spoken about being motivated by the fear of God. And now we're talking about being motivated by reward. And in part one of this message, I focus primarily on the reward of heaven itself. The hope of entrance into the kingdom of God as a gift of the grace of God, not of works. And that's just such a wonderful motivation, isn't it? The promise of heaven, heavenly reward, is such a wonderful motivation for us this morning. I mean, stop and think about it for just a moment. For everyone who reaches the, the shores of heaven one day, you, you breathe your, your last breath here in this life, and then you breathe your next breath in heaven with the Lord. Think of all that you gain in that moment. Think of it. In that moment, you gain at least five things. You can probably think of more. One, eternal life. Abundant eternal life, free from the brokenness and sorrow of sin. Eternal life in, in, with the presence of sin is, is great misery, but eternal life without sin is, is great gain indeed. Secondly, imperishable resurrected bodies, free from the fear of death. Thirdly, the new heavens and the new earth. And all, the, all the, that they contain that we may not even be aware of yet. Fourthly, we, we gain the, the sinless, unbroken fellowship with the saints in glory. Fellowship with the people of God of all time. Fifthly, and most significantly, we gain fellowship with God himself. We get to see God face to face. So I emphasized to you last time that, that ultimately the rewarder is the reward. God himself is your reward if you arrive there on that day. What makes heaven heaven is the fact that God is there. And any, any notion of a future rest or a future peace in a heavenly place that is absent of Christ is a Christless eternity. And that, by the way, is a spot-on definition of hell. Christless eternity. There is no pleasure, there is no peace, there is no joy forever and ever without Him at the center of it. The hope of heavenly reward is a wonderful motivator, and really the main thing is to get there, isn't it? When the role is called up yonder, I'll be there, right? I want to be there when the role is called up yonder. 
So I'm, I'm motivated by the hope of the gospel that I've embraced, that through Jesus Christ, though a sinner I be, I will hear him say one day, welcome. Though I'm a sinner, I, I have this hope because of the gospel message that I've embraced, that God will look at me, a sinner, and he will say, welcome. Come on in. Not because of my words, but because of his grace. And if I hear him say welcome on that day, then what more do I need? I think if I could sum up my sentiments on this, it would be Psalm 8410, where the psalmist says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. I don't care if you make me a doorkeeper. I just want to be there. Well, the reason I return to this message, I mean, what, what more do I have to say? I've already, I've already held out this, this motivating hope of heaven for you a couple weeks ago. So why am I returning to it again today? Well, I believe we are not only able to be motivated by the sure hope of hearing from the God who made us, hey, welcome, come on in. But I think that we can and should also be motivated by wanting to hear God say to us on that day, well done. <laughs> that a sinner like you or like you or like me or like anyone else could actually hear from the lips of God, well done, my good and faithful servant? Don't you long to have that kind of affirmation? It's something that, that strikes fear in the heart. Or it, it, it's a great hope. So this is a, a big, potentially overwhelming topic for us this morning. I, I was overwhelmed this week in studying this, to be honest with you. And I can't possibly begin to responsibly cover all the passages that talk about this. So here's what I'm going to do this morning. First, I want to establish three key basic facts about the judgment seat of Christ. Three, three key basic facts that everybody needs to know, and they may be obvious to you, but it's always good to review them. And then, I want to make five simple observations from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So that's, that's where we're heading this roadmap here. And those observations from 1 Corinthians chapter 3 are going to be about being motivated, not just by hearing welcome, but also by being motivated by well done. So first... Three key facts. One, we will all appear before Christ. Scripture tells us this in many different places, in many different ways. Probably the most plainly is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, where Paul says to the Corinthians, so whether we are at home, that is with the Lord, or away, we make it our aim to please Him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He says it right there, plainly. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Who, who is the we talking about in that verse? The we all that must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Well, certainly it was the Corinthians to whom Paul was writing. And it's significant that Paul didn't say, you all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He said, we all, it included him. He lumps himself in with them as, as one who will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It's a universal statement. And it includes everybody, including us. 
who will one day stand before Christ. It's inevitable. There's no loopholes. Paul says it again in the beloved book of Romans, Romans 14, 10. He said, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. It's Romans 14, 10. And then here in our text this morning, 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15, that was just read by John a few moments ago. Paul talks about the day that will disclose the quality of each one's work. It's not just Paul who spoke of this. I want to also ground this in, in the teaching of Jesus. Jesus warns repeatedly of this day, perhaps most notably in Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus taught about this judgment by telling some unsettling parables. If you've never read Matthew 25, you can go and read that later about the judgment seat of Christ. My, my point, and I don't have the time to enter into those parables of Jesus this morning, but my, my simple point is to, is to establish that there is a day coming where all will stand before Him. As Paul says in Philippians 2, 10 and 11, that on that day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's key fact number one. Two. But, there's a big but here. Those who are in Christ will not face condemnation on that day. That's the point of the cross, isn't it? The cross seems like foolishness until you come to realize that upon the cross, the Son of God died to take the condemnation that sinners like you and I deserve. Paul, in the book of 1 Corinthians, he calls the... the he says, for the word of the, the cross is falling to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, it is the wisdom and power of God. It was, it was a stumbling block for Jews, but it, and it was foolishness to Gentiles, but it, it's the power, very power of God. It's how we, we go from, from death to life. It's how we go from being under condemnation to actually in, having... Christ's righteousness itself attributed to our account. And so if you are a person who by faith is trusting in Jesus for your salvation on that day, if you are a Christian who trusts in Jesus by faith, listen to me. Listen to the truths of Romans chapter 8. You will look into the face of your judge on that day but you will see the face of your Savior. And who will be left to condemn you if your judge has already died to save you? Paul goes through this in Romans chapter 8. He says, if your judge is for you, if your judge lived his life for you, if your judge died for you, if your judge was raised to new life for you, if your judge has been all this time interceding for you with the Father, then who's left to accuse you? Who's, who's left to condemn you? Who will be able to even separate you from Him and from His love? No one is the answer. Who will be able to thwart what God has been doing all along for those who love Him? Isn't God, 
even now working all things together for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purposes? Who will be able to thwart what God has ordained from all eternity that those whom he foreknew he predestines and those whom he predestines he calls and those whom he calls he justifies and those whom he justifies he glorifies? We must keep these glorious truths from Romans chapter 8 in mind when you read about the fact that we're going to give account to God before the judgment seat of Christ as Christians. We don't dismiss, we don't set aside these truths about justification. We, we hold them close as we read these things. And we have a, a sure hope, a sure confidence that we will not face condemnation on that day because Jesus has already faced it for us. He has already fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law for us. When God looks at us, He doesn't just say not guilty, He says righteous. So those who are in Christ will not face condemnation, but we will face rather condemnation. We will be evaluated on that day for condemnation. The judgment seat of Christ will bring to light the quality of our work for Him. It's an, an accounting of our works, not for condemnation, for, but for com commendation. That's a, a mouthful. And whatever is done by His grace in our lives for Christ shall survive for all eternity and shall receive the praise of God. But whatever is done in our lives merely in the flesh, it will not survive that day. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3 plainly teaches. Truth be told, we will probably all experience the loss of some things that we thought were pretty valuable. But I also believe that on, on the other hand, I think all true believers are, are going to be commended for things that we may not even realize how significant they were, but God was in it. And He was doing something significant and eternal in our lives. Only God can truly judge someone's efforts for Him, and only God can pass the final word of praise. The final evaluation is His. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul, I think, paints for us what should be a sobering image, if you really stop and think about it. Paul is using a construction metaphor. The church is the building that's being constructed. It's not a, a literal church building like what we're sitting in this morning. You understand that? But it's a, a living building made up of individual believers coming together as the temple of the living God. That's, that's what is being constructed in, in the city of Corinth that Paul is talking about here in this metaphor. And God is the owner of the building that's being built. It doesn't belong to Paul. It doesn't belong to anyone else. It is the temple of God, after all, that is being constructed. And Paul, in this metaphor, is not the owner of the temple, as I said. He's just the one assigned to build it by the one who does own it, by God. He's a, a day laborer, if you will, hired to lay the foundation. And the foundation 
that is laid by Paul in the city of Corinth is none other than Christ himself. Christ is the foundation of the, the church that was founded in the city of Corinth. He's the, the foundation of any church. So the, the context of this metaphor is that Paul was sent by God to lay the foundation of the church in Corinth. You can read about that in Acts chapter 18. Paul goes to Corinth. He spent about 18 months there just sharing the gospel with people and discipling people and, and founding the church upon this message of foolishness that he's talking about. First Corinthians. After Paul lays this foundation as he begins to build this church upon Christ, then apparently Paul leaves town and other gifted teachers and leaders begin to come in and begin to add to or begin to build upon the foundation that Paul had laid. That's the imagery that we have here. So far, so good. However, what the specific circumstance here that prompts Paul to talk about this is that recently Paul has received word that there are some people in the Corinthian church, we don't know their names, who were seeking to continue this building project. But they were at best building on the foundation of Christ with perishable things. With perishable materials. And at worst, they were threatening to dig up the foundation of Christ that Paul had so expertly laid. And instead, they were seeking to replace that foundation in worldly wisdom. They were effectively threatening to destroy the temple of God, the church itself, at the city of Corinth. And there were apparently some who were seeking to lay a new foundation other than Christ. And it was threatening to splinter the church into rival factions centered around following their favorite leaders. So if you look back at chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians... Beginning in verse 10, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you. It kind of goes on from there, just beginning to challenge that. Paul's grieved by this division. And he rightly diagnoses it as a gospel issue in their midst. He says this kind of thinking is worldly wisdom. And even though the Corinthians apparently thought of themselves as being very super spiritual by this time... Paul says, no, you're only behaving in a merely human, fleshly, worldly way. It brings them back to the gospel. Back to the message of the cross that founded the church there in Corinth. Paul says, don't depart from the message. Don't depart from the foundation. Don't depart from Christ who saved you. So Paul begins to warn anyone who would seek to build the church in Corinth with imperishable things. And look at, look at chapter 3, verse 10 here. Paul says, According to the grace of God given to me by a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, 
and someone else is building upon it, let each one take care how he builds upon it. Verse 11, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. No one should build on the foundation of Christ with perishable things like wood, hay, or straw. I will say these are, are the common building materials that you would use to build your house or to build any old building. Paul says that using common everyday worldly materials is, a, is building according to the wisdom of this world. He says, no, if you're going to build on the foundation of God's temple, then you need to use temple-like materials. You need to use imperishable things like gold and silver and precious stones, things that will withstand the final judgment, the fire. So the image here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is really quite disturbing if you think about it, like I said. It's the image here of a Christian Corinthian leader standing before the judgment seat of Christ. And although he himself is saved from the fires of judgment, his life's work does not hold up. On the day of Christ when his work is tested with fire, it all burns up. He's been found to, to be building with perishable materials and, and there he stands in the ash heap of his service. Life's work. And Paul says that it's almost as if he was like a brand plucked out of the fire. Look at it. It says, verse 15, If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Am I the only one that that kind of like, wow, that kind of shakes you a little bit? How do, how do you reconcile this kind of passage is something like Romans 8 that we were just talking about. I think Paul here is, is not putting himself in the position of God. He's not making the error of saying, hey, I'm, I'm here to judge you, Corinthians, because Paul knew that only God can judge, truly judge someone's works. Paul wasn't making that error But I think Paul is being discerning here. He's looking at these leaders in the Corinthian church and he sees that they're on a path here where they're, they're building on the, the church of Christ. And at best, all their hard work and labors are going to be burned up. Because Paul knows what the, the imperishable materials look like. He knows the true gospel and they're not, they're not using it. The, the evidence of the way they're dividing and like, under worldly wisdom, under various leaders, shows that, that they're following a worldly wisdom. And that the work that they're doing is, is really, it's worthless. So Paul warns them. He says, at best your work is going to be, is going to be burnt up, but at worst here, Paul words, he says in verses 16 and 17, he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Paul goes right from this warning of, hey, look, your works might be burned up at best. And he insinuates that if you persist in this, you're going to literally 
dig up the foundation of the church that I have founded there in, in your city. You're going to be guilty of destroying the very temple of God. And he issues this strong warning here that if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Someone, it's not enough just to profess faith in Christ. You must bear fruit with that, with, with that confession. It's not enough to just say you believe in Jesus, but then to come in and just tear up the church and dig up the foundation of Christ in the church. Replace it with worldly wisdom. That's what they were doing. So it's a really stark warning here <laughs> to anyone who might seek to serve God in this manner. And, you know, it, it occurs to me that for most of us here this morning, this I don't think this is directed at us. I mean, maybe, maybe there's someone here, I don't know, I don't know everybody who's sitting out here, but I don't know of anyone in our church who is seeking to replace Christ as the foundation of our church. Right, so, I mean, if that does describe you this morning, then by all means, heed this stark warning. Right, that at the very least, you, you may have all your works burn up, and at the very worst, this may be evidence that after all, your profession of faith is worthless, and you're actually being used to... to Destroy the church. Except I don't, we don't have, we're not facing the situation in our church right now. So why, why do I bring this passage up? I bring it up because if you can look past the starkness of this warning here this morning to, to some people that were, were doing some pretty divisive things in the church, if you can look past that for a moment, I think you can actually look and see some encouragement to be motivated by the the hope of commendation from the Lord. Let me try to help you. I think there's hope here in this passage for us. A, a, a great hope of commendation on the day of the Lord. And I'm going to have to go through these pretty quickly because that took me longer to explain than I anticipated here. I've got five points, five brief observations for you. So buckle up. Right. The first one. First observation here from 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is that the greatest servant among the Corinthians that Paul talks about in this chapter is only a servant. I find this to be incredibly encouraging. Paul, the greatest missionary of all time, he says, look, I'm just a fellow servant. If you look back at, at verses 5 through 9, Paul says, what then is Apollos, what is Paul? We are servants through whom you believe as the Lord assigned to each. We're just day laborers out in the field. God gave us the job and we did it. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. There's encouragement there. I'm no, I don't know about you, but I'm no Paul. I'm not gifted like, like Paul was. But Paul lowers himself down. He says, you know what? That doesn't matter. Me, Apollos, Peter, anyone. We're just fellow servants in God's field. God's the big deal. 
I think I find that to be encouraging. Secondly, here, it's God who causes our labors to bear fruit. It's really just the verses I just read here. Sometimes I think it, it may feel like we're not accomplish, accomplishing much. And I've got news for you that's because you're not. It's God's work. Right? Paul, his job was to go out in the field of corn and to plant that seed in the ground. Anybody can do that, right? Cover it up. A little bit further. Figure it out, put the seed in, cover it up. Someone else's job to come along and water that seed. All just menial tasks that any day laborer could do. But it's God who comes along and gives the spark of life. It's God who gives life to that little pebble you put in the ground. And, and out from it comes life and produce and, and food that you can consume. It's God's work. It's God's field. He is the one we should admire and praise. And I think we can be encouraged because as long as we're serving Him, He can do mighty things for you. Thirdly, the grace of God in you is so powerful. It's a powerful force in your life. I love how Paul gives glory to God here in verse 10. He says, according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid the foundation. You might say, boasting about laying the foundation of the church in Corinth. Paul says, no, it wasn't me. It was according to the grace that God gave to me that I did it. It was God's grace in me. One sense, Paul could boast in a fleshly way that he had planted the church. And he's always quick to give glory to God, give glory to the grace of God that's so powerfully at work in his life. I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm a little undecided still about this, this passage here that where Paul describes this Christian standing before the judgment seat of Christ and everything around him is burned up and all that's left is his bare profession of faith. I'm a little undecided if that is intended to be a picture that's even possible. You may disagree with me and that, that's fine. But I, I, I suspect that Paul may be exaggerating here for effect. Because, and, and, and here's the reason why I say this, because I think there is ample evidence elsewhere in Scripture that the grace of God will bear fruit in someone's life. It will bear fruit. I believe that, that there will be a reason to commend the work of the grace of God in all true believers' hearts. The grace of God is not to no effect. It is powerful in the life of a true believer. And I believe that all who are truly saved will bear fruit for eternity. Let me, I could point you to a lot of different verses, but if I could just briefly point you to two. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. Frequently encourages me. Come right after the really famous verses that talk about how we're saved by grace through faith alone. That it's not our work, it's 
not our boast, it's God's gift to us, not a result of our works, that no one may boast. And then verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has good works in mind that he wants to use you for. And I believe he will, by his grace, accomplish those things in your life. Similarly, in John chapter 15, verse 16, this is the passage where Jesus is talking about abiding in him and how if we don't abide in him, we, you know, apart from him, we can do nothing. But when we abide in him, we bear much fruit. I wanted to read for you John 15, and verse 16, where it says, Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. That's a great hope to me. I think we can be encouraged from 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that the grace of God in you is powerfully at work. Let it work. Let it work. Fourthly, you know the imperishable materials that Paul's talking about here. This isn't rocket science. This is blue-collar work. Simply make sure that you don't stray from the gospel message as it has been faithfully presented to you. Christ is the foundation. Build on him. Build up his church, not with worldly wisdom, but with the foolish message of the cross. It's not rocket science. Know the gospel message. A child can know the gospel message. Know it. And don't depart from it. Use it to build up the church. Don't build up the church with your own wisdom. Build it up with the wisdom of God. Use the imperishable materials. Build on Christ with the materials that God has given and that God supplies. Fifthly, finally, all things are yours, Christ. I really long to get there. I appreciate you guys hanging with me. This is my last point. If you flipped out, come back. Okay? All things are yours in Christ. That's how Paul ends this passage here. Look down at verse 21 in chapter 3. It says, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or future. All are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. I'll be honest with you, it's very difficult for me to picture a day when I'm going to look and see other people receiving a reward, and I'm not going to have in the back of my mind this gnawing jealousy. What would have we got? Right? We were preaching in the same church. How come he got that? And I got this. It's hard for me to picture a day when I will be free from sinful jealousy at the, at the reward of other brothers, of other people. Isn't that hard to imagine that? There will be at least some part of you that's kind of like, well, yeah, I wish that was mine. Or that's not fair. Paul teaches the Corinthians here in verse 21, let no one boast in men for all things are yours, even now. It's foolishness to divide after different leaders. Because 
Paul is mine. Apollos is mine. Peter is mine. All is mine. Christ. We belong to one another. We are one in Him. I think this, this doctrine of our unity with Christ and therefore our unity with one another has amazing implications for the day of judgment. I think an implication of this is that if you are mine and I am and yours, then the judgment seat of Christ isn't going to be like the Oscars. You ever watch the Oscars? And you want to see some stressed out people, some ambitious people. Everybody wants that reward, and man, when I don't get it, I may be smiling, but oh man. Right? That's the world. It's not going to be like that. Might be a room full of winners and losers and preening and boasting. No, the judgment seat of Christ is going to be full of rejoicing. <laughs> I believe that. Because we are all one in Christ and your reward will be my joy and my reward will be your joy. And to Christ will belong all things. And to Christ will belong all the glory anyway. And then in Him we will find no lack. You know, later in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's going to describe the church as the body of Christ. Not someday in the future, but here and now, in this life, we are already to be one. We, Paul describes us as a body. We are told in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 26, and I close with this, we are told that when one member suffers, all suffer together. And if one member is honored, we all rejoice together, even now. That's how we're to be. How much more so will that be true on that day? We are free from sin. Oh, I want to be there on that day. And I anticipate him saying to me, welcome, not because of my own worthiness, but by grace and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is through that same grace that I have an, also have an eager anticipation of hearing him say, well done, my good and faithful soul. May you be motivated to that end with great hope and encouragement to you as well.